All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is a special night. We're going to be talking about Ray Kroc, who was the founder of, well, sort of the founder of McDonald's, the uh, famous fast food restaurant chain that's ubiquitous and all over the world. Uh, this is the Michael Keaton movie that just came out. But before we get into that, I just want to remind you that uh, it's, you still have time to get in on the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom Black Friday weekend special. He's got the best prices of the year right now, and you can, you can find more at actualanarchy.com slash libertyclassroom. And if you do sign up through our affiliate link, we will give you access to the Rothbard Repository, which is a searchable database, keyword searchable database of Murray Rothbard lectures. Uh, another bonus we'll throw in is a membership to readitfor.me of that. Uh, the membership that we're offering is a uh, light membership, which includes the audio and text summaries from the personal development category of books. And that's normally $89.99 per year. And you'll get that for free if you sign up for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom through our link. But the first five to get the master level of the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom through our link will also get the readit4.me annual masterclass membership, which is the world's only masterclass program designed around the world's best business books. Extra bonus, uh, that is normally $49 a month. And uh, so that's called the readit4.me masterclass. And if you sign up at the master level on the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, you will get that as a bonus if you're in the first five people to sign up on our link. And you can find our link at actualanarchy.com slash libertyclassroom. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. So uh, do check that out. I, I really appreciate all the work that and uh, our friends at Libertarian Union have been doing. We have come together. Uh, now there are nine of us, nine content providers on the libertarianunion.com. We have a Facebook page, and now we have a secret group. So if you are already a member of the Actual Anarchy Cadre, which you can become a member of our cadre at our Patreon page, uh, you will also get access to this secret secret group on Facebook where you can interact with the all nine different providers and, and any more that uh, happen to join us, and also their supporting listeners, their audiences. So there's a lot of cross-pollination uh, and opportunities to 
essentially be in the same digital room as a whole bunch of other libertarians and ANCAPs. And I don't know if, if, uh, if any of you guys have ever been physically in a, a space where there are a bunch of libertarians and ANCAPs, but it is a, a huge difference than what uh, you're most likely used to. Uh, I went to a Mises event in Seattle last year, and I was blown away just being able to pick up a conversation with just about anybody and not be run out of the room where they think you're crazy. Uh, I had a similar experience when we went down to Chile. We went down to the Gold's Gulch, and I know that kind of fell apart, but uh, the the celebration that I was there for was still, you know, 50 or, or 75 people who were all of the libertarian persuasion. They all wanted to find a, a better way uh, of living. They wanted to sort of do that permanent traveler thing, which I talk about at the um, black and dot gold website that I work on, uh, where you create multiple income streams that travel with you so that you can live anywhere in the world and still have an income and let your dollars take you a little bit further than they would otherwise uh, still in the United States. And it sounds like Robert has joined us uh, for what is going to be episode 52 of the Actual Anarchy podcast, The Founder. How are you doing, Robert? What were you telling them? I was just burning time, making stuff up. Actually, I was also promoting the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom because during um, the Black Friday weekend, which uh, this episode is going to post on the tail end of that, his deal will still be going on. And uh, our lucky listeners, if they take us up on this offer, will get some extra bonuses if they uh, take our affiliate link to, to purchase the best prices of the year from the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Ooh, very nice. That's right, man. We take care of our peeps. Uh, we, we come up with bonuses and different projects all the time. Uh, the Rothbard Repository is another thing I'm throwing in. And then uh, people who get the master level membership, which is the top dollar one from Tom Woods, will also get a master class membership from Read It For Me, uh, Read It For.me, Me, which is a $50 a month deal. They'll get a one-year one year plan for that. Uh, only the first five people, though, because they only have a handful of those. So get to it. If you like, if you like ads and you like supporting stuff and you like doing good things, how you been, man? I've been uh, pretty still, good. Good, yeah. You're a little bit late. That's all right. Yeah, my kids are a little needy, clingy. I guess. I, I mean, I love them. They're great, but they will sometimes say, you know, Dad, please don't go back to work. Oh, can you do your podcast tomorrow? Can you do it in the morning? It's like, honey, you don't understand. Rorbit doesn't get up early. And they got to go to bed anyway, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Six o'clock or 6.30 is usually when we try to get them to go to sleep. And it uh, was kind of a struggle until after 8 tonight. So I, they might still be awake. My wife just told me to uh, come out here anyway. So here I am. Those kids, they're the worst, always wanting stuff, needing stuff food, shelter. If it's not one thing, it's another. Always needing the stuff, man. But, you know, they're they're cool kids. They're awesome. I really enjoy them, and I'm very thankful for them. We just had Thanksgiving, and, you know, you got to be did thankful you? for things. <laughs> you did, because uh, for Thanksgiving, it's for a couple of days, isn't it? Well, you know, we have to speak to the audience from the perspective of when the show releases, right? So you're just going to fake this whole thing that you already had Thanksgiving? Just pretend that you've already had it? See, now we're breaking that wall. We're breaking the wall, audience. Uh, so we are actually recording this the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, but it's going to release the Sunday after Thanksgiving and after Black Friday, you know, when people get up super early in the morning to go get into fistfights in the Walmart parking lot. And uh, we, so, we did a really fun show on that last year when we did Fight Club uh, with the Reed Rothbard podcast. I might post a link to that down below in our show notes on this one. 
So you were trying to lie to the audience, and I'm trying to be honest with the audience. I see how it is. Well, it's not a lie if the show is going to be released on Sunday. If, yeah, but you didn't say that. You said, you said you already had Thanksgiving. I will have kids. had Thanksgiving by then. Why don't you tell me about this Thanksgiving you had? It sounds really good. I'll tell you what it's going to be. I'll tell you what it's no, going to be. No, just tell me what, what already happened. Well, it hasn't happened yet, oh, but the audience okay. doesn't know that until now, until we just told them. See, you blew right. the wall, man. We are actors on a stage. The whole world of stage. Yes, Shakespeare. We merely play it. And, you know, we just play NCAPs on TV. We're not real NCAPs. We just, Speak for yourself, we, son of a we bitch. Just, we just want all of the benefits that come from being NCAPs, you know, like the derision, the people thinking you're a conspiracy theorist, nut moron, uh, people thinking that uh, you have a bunch of hate in your heart and you just want to let it out, uh, and that yeah, you're you just... you don't care about anybody. Yeah, you hate the poor, you hate everybody. Um, you know, I really want... To, All those tangible benefits. I want yep. those benefits. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm going to, you know, glom onto something that people hate. So popular right now. Yeah, you're just doing it because it's cool and hip, and everybody's doing it. Well, it is like the super trendy thing, right? Um, you got to be on the on the cutting edge. Yeah, we're we're in it before it's cool, you know. Well, I think it's cool. I agree. It is cool. I love it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I was I was telling the audience beforehand, uh, before you you chimed in here, that we have our actual anarchy cadre, which is a Facebook group, secret group, where we can interact with other ANCAPs and libertarians, and it's a, a, a real big difference from how people would normally interact. You know, if most people on Facebook are statists, and most of the crap that you see posted by them is garbage, and it just makes you mad. And then the same thing when you go and hang out with people. Uh, but when you get a chance to go to a libertarian event or an anarchist event, like when we went to the Larkin Rose event or I went to the Mises Institute event or um, down at the Gold's Gold's Chili, it is so different being around people that you don't have to like hide your true, um, your true, like what you want to say, you know, like you don't have to couch your terms like very carefully. You don't have to like preface everything with this might sound crazy, but which is pretty much like how I started every, every phrase with, uh, with my now wife when we first started dating. Yeah, let your freak flag fly, baby. Go to camp. Hang out with all your real buddies. That's right. And and we just started a group for the Libertarian Union. It's called the Libertarian Union Copperheads. And so anyone who's a part of the cadre can also be a part of that. And the idea there is that all nine of the providers' audiences can all cross-mingle, co-mingle, cross-pollinate, whatever. Uh, So we'll just keep growing community, man. It's good stuff. Yeah, the bed of snakes. Good times. That's right. You know, and it's weird for, for an anarchist of the capitalist variety, libertarian anarchist my, like myself, Who? to speak of community because it almost has that um, socialist bent to it, you know. But really, we are the, the primary supporters of voluntary interactions, and that's what real communities are built upon. You know, we want voluntary associations with people who are benefiting from from being with others and working with others and trading with others. Well, absolutely. And by definition, at least ex ante, you expect a benefit from every voluntary interaction. I mean, I, I expect a benefit from this recording this podcast. I mean, ex post, I mean, I'm probably going to regret it. But right now, I'm thinking this is good times. Well, so far, so good. Uh, and we did talk about that quite a bit with Walter Block on the last episode, which was our Thanksgiving special talking about Poverty, Inc. on actualanarchy.com slash 51. And I think that was a really, really good episode. That was a fun one. He's a cool guy. Yeah, I, I, liked, I like old Doc Block. He's a good dude. I, 
I think that it's it's by the time this has been out, that episode will have been out for a few days, and uh, I think that it might be controversial. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that movie has some champions among the libertarian crowd, and I, I think we were fair to it. So, I mean, I think the the movie has its merits. I think there's some areas where it dropped the ball, but I don't think that anybody's going to come out and go these fucking morons. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but. I think I think we maybe maybe more so for the fact that most people don't don't know about uh, Dr. Block's position more than anything. Yeah, I think his position is maybe a tad harsh initially, and then we we got him to become his his uh, nickname of Walter Moderate Block. So he, he toned it down, he dialed it back a little bit by the end. Yeah, a little bit. Although I, I still think he he still says it's. He, I'm sure he still thinks it's a, a work of pure evil, but I I don't think it's that. I maybe maybe he gets a few things wrong. Maybe it, it focuses in on some things while ignoring other glaring things. But Well, this is an interesting line of, of thought here because evil, to me, implies intent, like ill intent. And I don't think they had ill intent. I think they just missed some things like, you know, the Bastion and the Hazlitt, like we talked about with Dr. Block. But I don't think they, like, purposefully said, you know what? Screw the broken window fallacy. Screw the petition of the candle makers. We're going to go our own road here. If If... Evil requires intent, and you might be right about that. You might very well be right, but let's just explore this just a tiny little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh, yeah, me too. So then by definition, at least your definition, then you would say like the average well-meaning lefty socialist doesn't do evil or, right? Oh, man, yeah. See, this isn't going to work, is it? Because if people believe they're doing good, but they're actually doing harm because they're unaware or what's the right word? Um, Hmm. I almost want to say stupid, but no, negligent, I guess. It's sort of like that ignorant, yeah, it's like that Rothbard quote where he says, uh, uh, you know, it's okay to be ignorant. You don't have to know about economics, right. Yeah, it's okay to be ignorant of economics. It's, of course, a very boring and dismal science and has lots of things to learn, but it's totally inappropriate and and, uh, irresponsible to have a vociferous opinion about policy while remaining in that state of ignorance. Right. So would you say that that's evil then? Well, I think with that Rothbard quote now, uh, choosing to remain in a state of ignorance and agitating for failed policies that require the use of force, whether they recognize it or not, still seems kind of evil. Yeah, because we used to be in that camp, remember? I, I, I think I'm leaning towards evil. If you want to use that, uh, yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe there should be a new word, or maybe we're, it's a word that we're not thinking of, but... Does evil require intent? I mean, certainly evil gets done, and evil can be done by the most well-meaning of people. I mean, you get take your average collectivist, Malthusian, and justify the means person, and you can justify any kind of nightmare scenario. And sure, tons of evil gets done in the name of creating a better society or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you're sort of Probably talking Hitler about... didn't believe he was doing something bad or thought he was creating something great, but who knows if he actually thought he was doing evil. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the interest by the means people realize that they're doing evil to achieve the end that they're desiring. But I think there is something different here in that if somebody is just totally unaware that what they're doing or they don't recognize what they're doing as evil, like uh, your mom, you told her, hey, you know, taxation, if I don't pay the people who demand the money from me, then they're going to send people to my house and shoot me if I don't pay or if I resist. Uh, She doesn't see that that is a theft or an aggression uh, when if you break it down to its basics, the building blocks of it, then it clearly is. But she's not evil for that, right? Mm, I think we're painting her as evil. 
I think we're painting anybody who advocates for violence on peaceful people as evil. But if they don't understand what it is, because there there has been an indoctrination and a propagandization uh, where, you know, you got that 1984 newspeak, doublespeak, where up is down, black is white. We've always been at war with East Asia. Um, slavery is ignorance is strength. Slavery is freedom. Uh, war is peace. You got almost all of them there. Good job. I think the only one you missed was we've never been at war with East Asia. Oh, but we're always at war. Yeah. Well, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, like they they twist the terms, of course, and so a lot of people can get confused or not see things for what they really are. Like they have a different term than theft. You know, they call it taxation. They have a different term from murder. They call it war. Um, you know, there's a whole list of these things. What about a person like Madeleine Albright when she says that half a million dead kids is, you know, worth it? Well, she's a ends means person. For sure. She was looking at the costs and what they gained and versus the number of dead people, and she was like, let's do it. Right, even though Saddam Hussein was still in power after that, wasn't, wasn't he? Back in her yeah, day? I think she was talking about that yeah, during Clinton's administration. Right. So, so how successful was that? Half a million dead kids and who knows how many adults uh, and the guy that they put in power that they no longer wanted in power was still in power. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about evil, though. I mean, our, our definitions of evil, you'd have to say that that qualifies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's definitely evil. But I think she, she was knowingly a bunch of dead kids is, is, a, is a obvious on its face evil. Sure. Whereas advocating for violence against a peaceful person isn't, you think? Well, I think if they don't make that connection to that's what it really is, because it really, the language is separated from what it really is uh, yes, significantly. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yes, I agree. It's a couple levels removed, but we're still adult human beings that are responsible for ourselves and our actions and what we advocate for. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into a recent event. Um, Charles Manson died recently. And what I found interesting about him, and I didn't even know this until yesterday, he didn't kill anyone. Correct. He got others to kill for him. Yes, he advocated for murders to be done. And I don't know if he even if he threatened for people to be done. He just kind of convinced them that these murders needed to be done and that they were going to be the first in a series of sort of class warfare, as I understand it, or something. And these rich people needed to die because they were rich and decadent and something like that. I, I'm not exactly an expert. I know he was listening to Helter Skelter a whole bunch, and who knows what his state of mind was, but... Yeah, yeah so, he convinced people. Right. So, I mean, we, we've talked about this type of thing before. Self-ownership, right? Sure. He's not responsible for the actions of others. Uh, we've talked about this with um, in the military and the generals and the president, et cetera, whether, you know, the just following orders thing is a legitimate excuse. But I can't help but think that this Charlie Manson thing is essentially what the government does. Except without force? Well, Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess the government does does have a degree of force, especially if you're in the military and you refuse. I mean, let's say you went into it and you didn't realize what you're getting yourself into because you, you bought the the advertising. Um, Kool-Aid. And then you're like, Kool-Aid. fuck this shit. I don't want any part of this. And you leave. And then you're a deserter. And they chuck you in a cell. Right, right. So there's some violence there. And, and who knows what, what Manson would have done if people were trying to leave. I don't know. I don't know enough about the story. I just know that he died recently. And uh, I had always thought, you know, never looking into it, that he was some kind of a cult leader, serial killer guy, and he was actually, you know, committing the acts himself. Oh, so you, you, yeah, you really didn't pay attention. <laughs> That's fine. It's a fine not to know something. I mean, I'm not an expert on it either, but I remember seeing a couple of news specials or documentaries or something. But yeah, 
um, Squeaky Frome and Sharon Tate and all those people. Yeah, it was one of those things that into the mansion and yeah, it was, it was I'm already just, dead. It was just one of those things I just you know you kind of are aware of who the person is and oh he's a crazy murderer guy. Uh, just like right. when we were growing up, I, I knew who Donald Trump was for some reason, and I don't know why. It was uh, he was rich. Well, yeah, but was, I mean he was a real estate developer. Yeah, but it was way before any of the you know reality TV stuff. Um, yeah, maybe but he, he was even on, in the eighties. He was he was like Trump Tower and Mr. Real Estate Developer and casinos and golf courses and stuff like that. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess as a kid, I probably just knew, oh, rich guy. Yeah. Who's right. sometimes on Rich and Famous, maybe, with Robin Leach. <laughs> probably. Is that guy still alive? Who knows? Probably not. He was old back in the day. Yeah. He had a great voice, though. Great voice. Oh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I just like in the, the Manson stuff to what the government does uh, on a certain level. And Oh, yeah. The, I mean... I mean, I don't know the details of the sentencing and whatever, but there is, there does seem to be some sort of a common law type of thing where if you are, you know, some sort of a part of a violent act, even if you were just saying, hey, you guys should go do this and not doing it yourself, you're kind of lumped in with them. Even so if like an accessory? It. Yeah, you're like an accessory or whatever. I don't know why he got, you know, the level of punishment that the other people did. I think everybody got like life in prison, except for the ones that cooperated or something. I don't know, but I know that um, like the ladies, or, I'm not sure if both of the ladies or at least one of them is still in jail, but most of them I think are still in jail. I could be wrong. I'm just talking to my ass right now, but um, it is, I think it is an interesting con- thing to talk about. Um, I don't know what it would be like in an ANCAP society, but I would hope that people would have more respect for self-ownership and you know, private property rights. And um, you know, I, could, I could tell you today, you, know, you should go kill so-and-so and you know, it's up to you whether you actually do that or not. I mean, if I told you to go jump off a bridge, would you? I mean, it's the same old, it's a classic, classic, you know, self-ownership parenting. And it just gets forgotten, I guess, as you get older. Just because your friend jumps off a thing or someone tells you to do a thing doesn't mean you have to do it. But, I don't know, courts still find in favor of those people. I mean, there's that girl that we talked about a couple times so far. Yeah, she, she was telling... Messages to that guy. Yeah, telling him to, to off himself, like, tonight's the night. Do it. Get back in the car. I mean, yeah, she's a shitty person, of course, but she's not guilty of murder. Yeah, anyway, inter- interesting stuff, and I, I don't mean to, like, sidetrack us. We're here to talk about Founder, or The Founder, right? That's the official name. It's one of those. I don't know. Yeah, I think we're it's... We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it on the 52nd episode of the actual Anarchy podcast. Is there anything else, any other house cleaning that we should do? Um, we talked about the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can still get in on that, and we've got special bonuses there. Uh, if you still got some holiday shopping, Cyber Monday's coming up. Smash our uh, Amazon links, and uh, you won't pay any more, but we'll get a little bit of a kickback from that. We've got that Libertarian Union stuff, which is really cool, the special groups. Um, gosh, anything else? Do we have any, any awesome stuff coming up? Uh, yeah, well, I've got the whole you know webcomic coming up with the designs and that sort of thing, but that's I got to finish the website and get that all done, and it's going to be a big whole production. And I have once again underestimated how much work is involved, so it'll take a little bit. I don't know if I'll be ready in time for you know the big shopping push. Probably not. But I should be good for 2018. All right, mark your calendars, people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is we were just on Don't Waste Your Hate with uh, the guys from Don't Waste Your Hate, oddly enough. Allow myself to introduce myself. 
Uh, that's Jeff and Tony over there. And we were uh, a guest along with Patrick McFarlane from the Liberty Weekly podcast. And we were talking about, I don't know, just kind of introducing anarchy and anarcho-capitalism to their audience. And I think that was a pretty fun conversation. Despite all of the technical difficulties, we spent probably a good two hours just trying to get a solid connection figured out. And I finally broke down to uh, calling in from a cell phone. You call me from a cell phone? Prank caller. Yeah, looking back on it, you probably didn't need to do that but it worked out all right. I think your probably audio quality was probably the worst of everybody, other than myself. I mean, I don't know what I sound like. So. But, yeah, it was a fun fun discussion. Check it out if you're uh, interested. Yeah, don't waste your hate. Dot com slash 17, I think. And they're really good guys. I'd uh, suggest you support them. Um, you know, subscribe to them. If you like their stuff, give them a rating or review. And, heck, give us a rating or review. We could use a few more of those. Yeah, buddy. Um. There was one other thing I wanted to mention. What is it? Uh, oh, part of the technical difficulties, I think, was because of how my internet is coming out to the office slash studio over the power line. Yeah. So I used some of the funds that have come in from the Patreon nice. and bought an upgrade, baby. Two Ds for a double dose of the Pimpin. We're going from a 500 megabit per second connection to a 1750 megabit connection. Ooh. And I'm hoping that that will increase my uh, my internet speeds out here. For whatever reason, I used to get about 30 out here, and then the last couple times we've been testing, it's been like in the you know single digits, and so that's a bit unfortunate. So when that new piece of equipment gets here, along with the new mixer that I just got today, still in the box, uh, we should be hitting some pretty significant upgrades in our audio quality and our uh, ability to include video and other things in the shows. So. Look out for that, everyone. Yeah, and we also might at some point do a uh, a true like recording where I record my voice over here and you record your voice over there directly, and then we just merge the two at the end, and it'll be nice and clean. She's clean, Bob. Yeah, inside joke, inside joke. Uh, you know, that is one of the things that has kind of come up a fair amount when we get new listeners. They're like, hey, man, we really like your content, but your audio, man, it's no good. And I'm like, man, we've been fighting this thing for so much. We're, we're on our fifth mic. We've got audio paneling, audio conditioning paneling in the in the studio now and all this stuff. And it's still, still kind of bothering people, though um, Patrick McFarlane was telling me that he kind of um, is nostalgic for it now. He's... <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, you know, whenever I, I hear you guys come on, it just like gives me that warm, fuzzy, you know, like, oh, there's their kind of dopey, uh, cheap audio quality. <laughs> <laughs> Talking through some tin cans. It just brings back the, the nostalgia memories, the member berries. Yeah, penny candy and a quarter to make a phone call, you know, that kind of stuff. The good old days, back when 15, people didn't have technology. 15-cent hamburgers. Uh, uh? Yeah, baby. That's right. Let's get into 15 cent hamburgers and uh, talk about the founder. And I've got the Google description if you're ready, Robert. I'm ready. All righty. Here we go. Here we go. The, the founder came out last year, 2016, a drama slash history about two hours long, 7.2 on the IMDb and 83% Rotten Tomatoes, 84% of the Google users. So pretty consistent there. And the description says the true story of how Ray Kroc, played by Michael Keaton, a struggling salesman from Illinois, met Mac and Dick McDonald, played by John Carroll Lynch and Nick Offerman. And I'm going to call him uh, Ron Swanson throughout this, by the way. Uh, Please do. 
who were running a burger operation in 1950s Southern California. Kroc was impressed by the brothers' speedy system of making the food and saw franchise potential. Kroc soon maneuvers himself into a position to be able to pull the company from the brothers and create a multi-billion dollar empire. Came out December 16th of last year. Director John Lee Hancock, budget of $25 million, and I don't see it noted here, but I believe it made about that much money as well. So kind of a break-even type deal. Uh, what do you think of the Google description so far, Robert? Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to you don't want to give away too much, and I, I can't really quibble too much. Um, I thought you know I thought Keaton was really good in this movie. I think he's really good in general. He's just a strong actor. But Offerman, can he can he not act, or is he just Ron Swanson all the time? Yeah, that's I mean, just him, fine. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just like I'm just gonna read the lines, and this is me. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, he doesn't, he's not he doesn't really, have he doesn't have what doesn't we call have a lot of range. Yeah, what we call in the biz the, the range. He doesn't have that. Yeah, it's like I, I play one character it's called Ron Swanson. Hope you like it, and you know, I'll be in your movie. It's like okay. I happen to like Ron Swanson, so it doesn't bother me too much. And he wasn't as uh, overtly, you know, the caricature of a libertarian in it. Uh, but he was kind of the you know red-blooded Republican slash uh, everything needs to be like in order and and just so like very um, mechanically inclined, very engineering minded. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't, his character was totally different than the Ron Swanson, but his delivery of his lines was almost identical. So I just, it, all you would need to do is change to like him like mugging to the camera once or twice and then say a joke and you're like, ah, it's Ron. Yeah, hold up but, an Etch-a-Sketch or a light bright and says poop on it. I mean, you know, I like him. I mean, he's a he's a liberal lefty kind of a wacko dude, but you know he's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I listened to his, um, I guess his uh, comedy special that came out last year, and I was kind of expecting more of a Ron Swanson. Like I was sort of hoping that that character would rub off on the man, but no. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> That's too bad. Anyway, well, I mean, that that show was written by, you know, liberal lefty guys and their understanding of what a libertarian is. I mean, Ron Swanson has, if you watch the whole series, there are quite a few contradictions in the character himself, which is fine. You have a complex character, but it's never really addressed when they have contradictions is when you actually understand what he what a libertarian would be. And if you write contradictions into the character, that's fine. But then have them deal with those contradictions, fleshing out that character and how he feels about those things. But I'm asking too much of a sitcom. It's fine. Right. Well, and the, other, the other thing I'm sure is that they probably don't even recognize that the contradictions are there. Sure. That's exactly right. The writers wouldn't have any idea. I mean, you're talking about what's-her-name from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Amy like, Poehler, is that right? That's right, yeah. And she's one of the head writers along with, you know, I'm sure a bunch of her friends and ex-SNL people and stuff. So, you know, I can't imagine they would have a full understanding of what libertarianism is. Right. Well, very anyway. few people do, even even libertarians. <laughs> apparently, apparently it's one big mystery. So, doesn't seem that complicated to me. But we've been spending a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure it out ourselves. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, let's talk about this movie, Daniel. Um, the movie starts off. He's this kind of unsuccessful salesman. He's kind of a kind of reminds me of some people I know where he will have an idea for a thing to do and maybe it'll work out maybe it won't this one doesn't work but he's trying it and he puts all his efforts into it yeah and now he's currently doing this shake thing and 
he's like, man, this is okay, it's kind of working. But then he runs into this McDonald's, and he's like, this is amazing. But uh, what I wanted to ask you about was at the very beginning, he gives this speech, he's a sales pitch when he's selling these things. And he's like, if you increase the supply, you increase the demand. Because if you, the, ki- the customer knows that when he orders it, it, it'll be ready to go right away or within 30 seconds as opposed to like five minutes or something like that. So that'll increase your demand. And he doesn't get a whole lot of sales because of this sales pitch. And I don't think it would really convince me either. Um, the whole idea of you know, supply-side economics or whatever, can we, can we talk about the flaws of that? Yeah, we can, um, though I think that there is something to what he was saying in that sure. it's not just a monetary cost in anything, right? You're, you're changing sure. one state of your being into another state. Like you're trying to satisfy a want or desire or relieve a, a pain or a hunger or whatever, and that's what motivates you to act. So you expect that uh, you'll be better off when you do something and you're trading, like I said, not only money, but also the time that it takes to acquire the, you know, the satisfaction, right? And so if someone knows, hey, I'm going to order a milkshake and it's going to take 20 minutes, maybe I don't need a milkshake. So bad. Right. Uh, but if they know, but hey, if you go to this place and you go, hey, these guys will have a milkshake ready for you in like 20 seconds, it's great. Then maybe right. they'll order more. It's true. But my point being, if you just increase the supply of a thing without reducing the speed, the cost of it, you're not necessarily all of a sudden going to have a bunch of people want that thing. I mean, if I create, you know, a million pet rocks and they're all ready to go, and here you can have one for just ten dollars, doesn't mean that people are going to all of a sudden want much pet rocks. Well, that, that's, that's where I was trying to make that clarification or that distinction right. that it's not just the monetary cost. It's also the acquiring it, both the time and effort. And so even though it might still be a $5 shake, I, bet I got a taste of a $5 shake, by the way, um, because it's now a 30-second or a one-minute wait versus a 10 or 15 or 20-minute wait, the cost is no longer the same as far as the money goes. True. It is now you're spending less time to get that thing, and that is significant. Absolutely. Right. As so, the movie proved, when he gets to the McDonald's and people are ordering and like the food is ready right away. Right. And, and, and this, whole, um, this whole mixer thing, this whole point of this in, in the film is to foreshadow that this guy is aware of this concept so that when he sees the speedy system in action and, you know, he's like blown away by right. uh, his first experience in ordering at the McDonald's in um, San Bernardino, uh, that's where, you know, the, the light clicks, right? And, and he's been in a thousand kitchens. Like this guy's been around the block. And like you had said, he's a guy who's a, a dreamer and a chaser and he throws his whole body and his whole effort into things and to the chagrin of his wife and to... Um, you know, his friends are like, oh, like buddies. yeah, yeah what, what, what crazy scheme is it this time? You know, and right. I, I know who you're talking about, and I think maybe you're also talking about me a little bit. <laughs> but, sure. Yes, but I, I think there's a, another person as well. <laughs> oh, there are multiple people. I'm not just talking about one or two people here. I'm talking also about myself. Uh, there's a certain amount of dreamer in me as well. I mean, what, I'm not just working some nine-to-fiver schlepping some crap i'm 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 trying to do something here and who right. knows if it'll turn out or not and and part of part of my takeaway from from the movie and just my general philosophy in life is that all of these things that i'm sort of chasing i'm i'm learning from and i'm acquiring knowledge and experience and um also the uh the vision to see when something truly is good or not it's something you kind of practice and hone over time. An example, and, and you were actually part of this, is when my wife and I 
found our cabin, you came with us. True story. And we knew upon seeing it, like, this is an amazing deal. It's an amazing cabin. It's awesome. The price is so crazy low. But we only knew that because we had looked at dozens of houses for years. And anything else that we had seen anywhere near this price range was a complete, like, teardown type situation, you know? So to be able to recognize that this was that diamond in the rough, you need to know what the rough looks like and what diamonds look like. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, if that had been the first cabin you would want to, you probably wouldn't have just jumped right on it without right. any kind of reference. Yeah, we would have had that hesitation, and that would have cost us this place. Like, this was going to go the day that we found it, right? There were other people coming to look at it, and we knew we had to jump on it. So we lucked out. We definitely lucked out. But I think yeah, that's, what, that's what Ray Kroc did. You know, he had been around so much, and he, he knew the frustrations that consumers were having, and um, he knew there was a better way. He just didn't know what it was, and he, he stumbled upon it and was able to recognize it. And that's, uh, that's an amazing uh, entrepreneurial trait that is not something that not everyone's going to have that, you know? Oh, no kidding. I mean, I know it's a speculator market, but I remember I was just talking to uh, somebody the other day about how when I was thinking about getting into Bitcoin, it was like 50 bucks a coin or something like that. <laughs> and now it's like 8200 a coin. It's, you know, some people have that gift for recognizing opportunity. And other people are maybe more reticent, more hesitant, and, you know, not really sure, doesn't want to commit until they know more, until they know better. But by the time you know more or know better, you, it's no longer that great opportunity anymore. Uh, Croc was in the right place at the right time, it seemed to me, where he had that right level of experience. And when he saw this new revolutionary thing, he was like the first person to see it and recognize it for what it was. And he was also the right person to take it nationally and turn it into a global thing. So um, I think he had the right, the right drive and the right mindset, but he also happened to have the right experience, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And he was a little bit gruff. He was kind of a dick, you know. Um, and oh, yeah, he's no, he's no angel. I, there, that's the whole point. I don't, I don't know if this movie is really painting him in the greatest of light. It doesn't seem like it was made you know, by McDonald's Incorporated. More just like a human portrait of the guy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, and it just kind of showed that he was such a driven guy who wanted to achieve success, and he knew that the levels he had achieved previously weren't enough to satisfy him. He had that conversation with his wife. You know, she's like, when is it going to be enough? And he's like, honestly, probably never. Yeah, he's, and that, that, that actually that conversation really surprised me because I, I've never known, and I hate to be like a sexist whatever, but I've, I've never personally never known a woman to be like, man, I don't like my, my driven, uh, entrepreneurial, or at least, you know, um, ambitious husband or whatever. Like everybody's looking for an ambitious person that I've seen. I've never seen anybody to go, man, I just wish you weren't so ambitious. I mean, maybe she's upset about some other things. Like she wants to spend more time with him. She wants him to take her out more, blah, 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 that sort of thing. But yeah, I, there's a difference between a guy that puts in, I don't know, a lot of time at the office, maybe, to just kind of, that's just how much it takes, and you're not necessarily moving up versus a guy who's spending a lot of time working because he has a goal in mind. Am I making sense? I mean, yeah, a bit. I mean, I, I've seen and almost, I don't want to say I've totally experienced this, but it, it, it does affect my relationship with my wife in that I work more than she would like. She wants me to spend more time with the kids. And I know of people who work so much that they spend, you know, like even less time with their significant others. And, and it resulted in 
separations and things like that, you know. So there are people who are out there that are just so driven to accomplish something or, or make make their project complete that they let a lot of the social stuff kind of take the back burner and then they, they pay that cost. And it's unfortunate. Um, I'm trying to find a balance myself. Yeah, it's a different thing to balance. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe people don't say they want one thing and actually want another, but I don't know, if you ever go on these you know dating websites, it's always, you know, I want somebody who's ambitious. But you know what that means is, that means they're going to be working all the time. <laughs> so... Maybe you just want your cake and eat it too. I mean, that's probably the case with everybody. I want you to be there for me all the time and to be out there making all kinds of money and taking care of the kids and this and that and uh, help me with the housework and everything. Well, it's great to want things. <laughs> yep. Well, as long as it's driving you towards being productive and, and trying to achieve it, I mean, that's the whole point of human action. But if you're waiting with want with your handout, uh, you know, with that old saying, uh, hold one hand out behind a cow and one hand out for something else and see which one fills up faster. And, you know, obviously the one with the cow shit fills up faster. I forget exactly how that goes. Yeah, you butchered that one, but we know what you're talking about. Yeah, I totally butcher. I am the butcher. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I wanted to mention to you, Robert, that I have a copious amount of notes for this thing. And oh, I, I've done these notes in a notebook from the future. A, uh, an item called a rocket book, Everlast, and these are available on Amazon. Click on our Amazon link. But what it is, it, um, it's a reusable polyester paper that you can wash. And so you can fill up the notebook or just fill out a page, and you can scan it into your, into your phone, into an app, and uh, there's these little um, indicators that you can tell it, okay, if, if this one is marked, send it to my wife as a text. If this is marked, put it on my Google Drive. If this is marked, save it in my Evernote, etc. You know, you can assign all these things. Um, so I have one of these things, and their first version, you had to microwave to erase the ink. <laughs> huh. uh, needless to say, that, that would didn't probably do as well. This one, you just have to um, let the ink dry for like 10 or 15 seconds after you write, write on it, and then it's bonded, and then you can use a damp cloth to erase it. Nice. So it's like a notebook? I mean, it's really, it feels like paper, and you use a piece of paper, pencil on it, or what? Yeah, you use a, a pen. It's like a, a special, it's a real pen, normal pen, but it's, it has to be a special variety of this pen. It's called a friction. Yeah, right. yeah. But you use normal ink? Yeah, it's a pilot friction pen, and, and apparently whatever the formulation is for this type of pen, it, it bonds with the paper, but then comes off with water. Now, the one problem is because of the 10 or 15 second time to bonding, this thing doesn't work well for left-handed people. Yeah. I used to smear all the time trying to draw or write in ink as a kid in class. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. So that's the one thing I would say is this is for right-handed people. I mean, it's another one of the benefits, not only the longer life and the better looks and yeah. all the rest, but... Uh, and the arrogance. And the arrogance, you know. <laughs> But man, let's let's get back to talking about this movie. But if you're right-handed and want to try out the paper of the future, check it out, Rocket Book. So this this book discriminates against lefties, literally. Literally. All right. Um, so I thought it was interesting that the the very first McDonald's on their big fat billboard out front, right next to the hamburgers for 15 cents, they go, "U.S. government inspected beef" or something like that. So I, I would be <laughs> I'd be loath to to uh, support that or at least not be super confident 
Yeah, that really stood out to me as well. Yeah. I, I got to think that that goes back to the whole Upton Sinclair and the jungle where that was probably by that time still a, um, you know, a staple of the public education system. And so having the USDA inspected beef was an important uh, signal to consumers, even though it um, really works backwards from that. If, if you assume that there's a health inspection and a government inspector, then you yourself as a consumer are going to have your guard down versus uh, a free market approach where you need to be satisfied for your own um, consumption that something is safe to eat or not. Absolutely. And there's, you know, it's nice to have signals in the market for sure. Hey, we, we do this, this, and this. And we, you as a consumer would be interested in this because this is something that I'd be interested in. But I just want to reiterate, I mean, no, nobody who's making food is trying to poison their customers. They want, to, they want to create the highest quality for the cheapest price product because they're in the competition for your dollars. And uh, they also don't want to be poisoning their neighbors and their friends and whatnot. So they, they, reputation matters big time, not only in the food business and in any business. Um, so, I mean, if word got around that you're making people sick with your burgers, you're not going to last very long. But, like, to your point, the more people are aware of the horrific nature and the piss-poor service that government provides, uh, I don't think yeah, the USDA stamp is going to – wouldn't impress me, that's for sure. I would be far more interested in word of mouth or any other kind of – I mean, I like the idea of the big, the big glass windows. I thought that was a great thing, that you could look in and see your food being made. Uh, that's something that's used by all kinds of places these days. Um, I think uh, Krispy Kreme does it and uh, other places. And that, that's a nice. You can look in and you can see how clean that, that kitchen is. Um, you can see how quickly and how long that, you know, if that food's been sitting out or whatever. Uh, I think those are nice innovations on their part. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, and, and that's a, a way of letting the consumers know that this product is safe for them or as, as safe as it can be, that the kitchen is very clean and it's very efficient, it's well laid out, it's very quick, and all the rest. And, and one more point on the um, government health inspectors is not only does it give a um, false assurance to a consumer, but it also gives a false signal to the producers and lets them sort of off the hook in a way where they don't need to be as cautious with the materials coming in has got this stamp on it. Yeah, and how much does that stamp cost? I mean, well, you just got to take some inspector out to dinner. I mean, these, you know, who knows what the, I mean, the inspectors aren't in competition with anybody, really. So how well are they really doing their job? Are they even doing their job? How many in a thousand are they actually inspecting? One, zero? Do they, how often do they come in and check your facilities? I mean, as long as you're getting that stamp, I guess it doesn't matter, right? So, yeah. Right. Any yeah. Number and, of reasons why this is terrible. And and they also have a built-in um, fail forward. The uh, the health inspector, you know, any bureaucratic process, where if they fail, they can just say, oh, we're understaffed. We don't have a big enough budget. Um, we weren't able to inspect that place in the last year and a half because we're we need more money. Right. Right. There's never any uh, accountability. I mean, right, there's no people get sick. <laughs> do they start banging on the uh, the FD, USDA or something like that? I mean, do they? Do they? <laughs> No, no, no. The uh, the restaurant gets the the fallback or, or is the right. the fall guy, you know. Right. 
So it's weird because the restaurant or the grocery store or the, the food producer, because you always hear about these recalls, right? Uh, sure. Salmonella, et cetera. It's always the producer that's to blame or the restaurant that's to blame. It's not the failure of the inspectors. So they get the right. bo- best of both worlds. They get a no feedback mechanism uh, for the quality of their services that they provide. They give false assurances to the consumer and to the producer. And then if they do fail, they get a justification for bigger budgets, bigger staff, and they get a fall guy to take the blame for it. It's a beautiful system. Yeah, if anything, they have an incentive to do a shitty job because then they get to, you know, it's not only it's, it's, it's um, job security and they would get a bigger budget next year. Maybe they'll get a higher salary or get more workers or any number of things that they might want. It's a perverse incentive scheme, and the market would solve it. Right, and I think Mises talks about this in his book, Bureaucracy, so I'll be sure to add a link to that book down below. Uh, Mises is uh, an acquired read because he is um, super intelligent and uses very large and very German words, so it can be very dense reading, but it's, uh, he makes very, very insightful analysis of this type of stuff. Definitely. Check them out. So let's get back so to this movie. Next? Okay. All right. So the McBrothers, the Ron Swanson and the, uh, what do we want to call the other guy? Big and tall. Big and tall. Mac. They were very smart guys, but very specifically smart. They were specifically smart in the area of efficiency and engineering, like I was alluding to before, to where they were going to maximize the operational capability of their restaurant. Yes. But that is a very specialized um, skill set. Skill set, and and in the division of labor, I mean, they couldn't really devote much of their efforts to also specializing in how to run a franchise. And so that's right. where you get the benefits of the division of labor coming along. When when this guy Ray Kroc comes in and he sees how this thing operates, and he knows it's so much better than everything else he's ever seen because. Like I said before, he's been in a thousand different restaurants and, and they show this in the early part of the film where he's making his milkshake um, sales calls, the chicken egg stuff. He's ordering stuff and it's the wrong order comes and it takes a half an hour to get to him. And there's a bunch of, you know, hooligans that hang out there and the place is dirty and or the place is empty or whatever. You know, it's all, all these problems. And when he comes upon the McDonald's restaurant, he's like, holy crap, they've got a line it's super fast. They get huge, huge, um, you know, customer base. It's good quality food at the time. And, and I think now McDonald's isn't necessarily known for quality food. At least in my growing up, it's always been one of those things like it's junk food. Yes. And I think it's still retained that moniker, at least for me. I mean, I can't imagine what the kids these days are thinking about it, but I can't imagine. I mean, they've added all kinds of things to their menu from the filet fish to salads to breakfast and all that sort of thing. But it's still, people know it's, it's fast and it's fairly cheap, but it's not necessarily the best or really necessarily healthy. Yeah, so I guess the bar was much lower back in the 1950s, right? <laughs> or perhaps they yeah. were just that much better than what, was, you know, what else was on offer. Mm-hmm. That's especially, yeah, in the way that, that the movie portrays it, that if you wanted some kind of dining out experience as opposed to sitting having a sit-down restaurant, if you wanted, like, fast food, that meant sitting in your car, waiting for the car hop to come out on their roller skates like the movie shows. And I'm sure some places did it a little bit better than others, and maybe they were exaggerating a little bit, but I don't think they were wrong about all of it. And that's for sure the way they went to paper was huge from all the dishes, and the baskets and that sort of thing, 
Um, yeah, and it just cuts down on all kinds of stuff. The, the way that they organized their labor force and the way that they organized their kitchen was huge. I mean, each person was so efficient in their, what they did and their timing. Uh, that was revolutionary. And then they didn't waste, you know, personnel having to go out and take orders and get it wrong or get it right or roller skating around all over the place. You just made them come to you and had some food ready for you. I mean, there's a place in Seattle that does that exact thing. It's called Dick's. And it's essentially like going to a 1950s San Bernardino McDonald's. You walk up. You know, there's a line, especially at lunchtime. You walk up. You order. You get a greasy burger and a greasy fries. And hand-beaten shake. shake. (laughs) And that's it. That's all you can order there. But it's still, it hasn't changed probably in 30 or 40 years or maybe 50 years. Who knows? But they're still in business. There's still a demand for that, that service there. So, you know, McDonald's has changed and Dick's hasn't. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, and Dick's is, uh, you know, a very small regional player, and McDonald's is thousands of restaurants all over the world. So pretty pretty significant difference. One sort of uh, you step back in the DeLorean and you go back in time, or you get in the DeLorean where we don't need roads anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's another movie so, um, we should do at some point, The Back to the Future. Yeah, it's a pretty good series. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that the boys, yeah, they had a different skill set for sure, but they also had a, an artistic vision that was preventing them from really turning it into a franchise operation. They wanted absolute control over, well, his vision. He, they wanted it to be exactly, each, each place to be exactly the same, what they had created. And, um, yeah, they're, the movie was all about where Croc wanted to make changes or the franchisee wanted to make changes, and the brothers were absolutely against it. And they, in fact, they were, even, they were even balking or at least going slow and trying to you know, make sure it was all right when he wanted to add a basement in, in, a, in, a, in a place in the Midwest where you've got tornado country where you have to have a basement so you can escape tornadoes. Yeah, yeah, and this is all a result of the contract when he finally got them to agree to try a franchise again with him because they had tried it themselves and failed because they couldn't yeah. get the the people running the franchises to actually fall in line, and they started going off menu and all of these other uh, complications. But yeah, this contract did give the McDonald's brothers um, an astounding amount of control, and Croc was just signing it. He's like, whatever, you know, like, I agree, I agree, I agree, because he wanted to get this thing off the ground. Like, he knew it was so good, he didn't want to get anything in the way of getting this thing off the ground. Right, and maybe if he had been more careful and thought it through a little more and had some other people look at it, he might have had a different take and been able to negotiate a little bit better, but yeah, he was in a hurry, he was excited, and he just wanted to get started, because later on, it becomes very clear that they are holding him back. Um, There's one big dispute after another between them, but I would say the biggest, which is kind of, well, I don't know if it's the biggest, but um, the whole Instant Shake fiasco and where he, Croc was like, you know, this is going to save a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of money. And they're like, yeah, but we don't care. We, we want it. It's called a milkshake, and it's going to be a milkshake for as long as it's a McDonald's. And what did you end up thinking about that? Because he ends up just doing it. And that kind of, kind of serves as the impetus for him just buying them out. When he's eventually, I mean, it's later on down the road when he's actually got a bunch of capital and he can afford to do it. But eventually he's just like, you know what, you guys are holding me back. This is, this is not going to work out. I need to be able to innovate. 
and they were very much and it's weird that they were such innovators but they weren't innovators they were only innovators in certain ways they still had certain levels of i don't know if you want to say quality but they had a certain vision for the business that didn't involve you know things like putting the coca-cola like they were okay with displaying the u.s government but they weren't okay with coca-cola being on the sign the signage yeah, like real small because that too. was crass commercialism or whatever yeah and i, I you know i kind of want to jump off on that because mcdonald's is now synonymous with strip malls and the blight across america and everywhere is the same and consumerism is evil and all that stuff and i wonder if that's maybe an avenue we can start talking about because it the film depicts the mcdonald brothers as sort of uh uh like that in a way as like what as being against that kind of a thing where, you know, you look at a street corner and there's a McDonald's and there's a Starbucks and there's a Chick-fil-A and there's a Barnes and Noble and there's a Joanne fabric and there's an office depot or whatever. Like uh-huh. you could be in Orlando or you could be in Albuquerque or you could be in Buffalo. Like you, you can't really tell except, you know, there's palm trees or it's cold or whatever, but everywhere looks the same, like consumerist cult, culture that everyone seems to be hating on all the time. Yeah, yeah, except that they were all for it. So were they against it or for it? I don't know. Because they were all for it when they wanted every single McDonald's to be exactly the same. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they, they also wanted their cake and to eat it too. Like they wanted to have a consistent product that a consumer, no matter where they ran across a restaurant, a McDonald's restaurant, they knew what they were getting. And I... Uh-huh. I run into this myself when I'm out traveling for business, and I try not to do that very much. But uh, I like coffee. I like to have it. Um, but it's hit or miss if you go to a new area and you're not familiar with what's on offer. So I go to Starbucks. I don't like Starbucks particularly, but I know what I'm going to get. And it's just good enough to where it wins out most of the time when I'm out traveling. Right, because the time it would take for you to sample all the different varieties at different places, the little local shops, would just be too much. You just don't have the time or the effort or the money to, who cares? I mean, go with, you know, just good enough. And it, that's the same when people are traveling abroad. You know, if you're a, an American tourist in India and you necessarily don't know what you're ordering in some places, you can walk into a KFC or a McDonald's and, and know what you're getting. There's a certain value in that, even if you know it's not the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, and it's not, you know, an all-the-time thing for me. I mean, I, I do like to be adventurous at times, but if I'm in a hurry, you know, running through an airport, and I'm like, oh, man, I really need some coffee. Am I going to go to, you know, High Flyers coffee stand in there, or am I going to go to the Starbucks? Yeah. I thought it was interesting when Croc finally convinced them to franchise that he pulled the whole patriotism line, do it for America, because America needs this. Yeah, the yeah. Red, white, and blue. Yeah, and then the religious stuff a little bit later, it was a little weird. Yeah, he turned it, like, into a church like, this is family, this is church, and we're open seven days a week. Yeah, I think that he was um, couching his argument in emotional terms at that point to convince these guys, because he had already met some of their resistance, you know, like, oh, we've tried this before, it doesn't work, you know, all that stuff. So he had to sell them on a vision. I mean, right. he was a guy who, he was listening to motivational stuff, and he, uh, you know, he, he'd worn his shoes thin, man. He'd, he'd been out there, and uh, all of that preparation that he'd put into learning about this type of stuff, he knew he was onto something. So I think that he was kind of grasping at whatever he could do to, to get these guys on board. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. He was, if, if the first thing didn't work with them, he's going to come back and do it again. He had, and that, that was one of the main running themes throughout the movie, was tenacity. Or what was it? What was the word per- he used? Was it tenacity? Persistence. Persistence. Yeah, because like we've said many times, you know, a great idea is super cheap. You can have a million great ideas, but you got to whole ass that great idea and turn it into something. You can't half ass a great idea. It doesn't turn out. It doesn't work that way. 
Yeah, that's a Ron yeah, Swanson absolutely. quote. <laughs> absolutely. It sure is. Yeah, and now speaking of, of the Ron Swanson character, um, one thing I thought was interesting was he said, these fries are, are too crisp. They're 5% too crisp. Like, yeah. That's a made-up bullshit thing, man. It sure is. Nobody says that. Nobody talks that way. You go, these are just a little too crisp, or I like them a little less crisp, but nobody says 5%. <laughs> uh, but they were, you know, fairly entrepreneurial guys, the brothers. Like, they were aware from New Hampshire, and things weren't working out for them there, so they moved west to get into um, movies in Hollywood and whatever and started working for studios driving trucks, and they saved up money to be able to buy their own theater, and then timing didn't work out for them, so the Depression wiped out their investment there. Uh, and then they stumbled upon the, you know, people still need to eat idea. And, and they did some pretty uh, innovative things to make it all work. Uh, so they were very industrious and entrepreneurial, but they were also, I think, they had a little bit of blinders on. Like they were, they would have been good in a Dick's scale size operation. You know, like four or five yeah. restaurants close up, close to each other where they can go in and check in on them, that kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, they just wanted to have their little piece of, the pie and have it be according to their own artistic vision. They didn't, they, they liked the idea maybe that Croc was pushing that, Hey, we can make this international global, you know, your vision coast to coast sort of thing. But it seemed like these guys were just built differently. They, they, you're like, you're right. They would rather be just in that happy, happy to have just these couple little restaurants and run them each perfectly. That sort of meticulous, you know, control as opposed to what was happening with what Croc wanted to do. Right. And and another thing I really liked that they did was they took very uh, large menus, very complicated menus, and broke them down to, okay, what are the bulk of our sales? So it's three items. That's 87% of our sales. Why do we have these other 27 items? <laughs> yeah, that's just waste. I mean, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your storage space. You're wasting everything. Just, I mean, you, you, for the, the, the 13% of business you're bringing in, you're spending all this time having space to cook it and storage space to have it and delivery to get it there and buying and wasting time. Yeah, cut it out. Specialize. Yeah, specialize and, and be the best at the, you know, three or four things that, that you're best at. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, you go into a place like Panera Bread these days. Man, I walk in there and I'm like, what the fuck do I do? The menu yeah, is... Order. <laughs> a huge menu all across the wall or something like that. Yeah, and it's not clear how it flows. Like, all right, is this like part of a combo? Do I do one thing and then pick something else? It does, it, I've been there maybe a half a dozen times and I still don't understand it. Yeah, I've been there, I think, three times. And each time I'm confused... Each time it's like, where do I order? Oh, is this the line over here? Which which one of these places? And then what do I order? I don't I don't know. I see pictures and I see prices, but I don't know what I'm supposed to order. I don't know what I want. Yeah, it's 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 real bad. I don't know how they've become as big as they have been without cleaning that shit up. Yeah, it's that is weird to me. I think they'd do a lot better if they if they broke it down to you know even a dozen items. Just make it make sense. Yeah, and then give it some sort of an order and a flow and a I don't know just a structure that. Someone walking in there for the first time doesn't have to talk to the, the lady at the cash register for five minutes trying to figure out what it is they make and what it is that you can order. And I don't know. Maybe it just made me feel stupid, but I didn't like it. Yeah. And then yeah. the food wasn't even that good. So I was like, eh, never mind. Yeah, and it was like 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah, it was overpriced and it didn't get that much. And well, it had decent atmosphere. I thought that was the best, best thing about that place. Yeah, the free Wi-Fi. Um, there you go. Oh, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention with, with the, the guys being entrepreneurial and carving the restaurant in half and 
getting it to the right place. The best line in the movie, he says, that's some pure dick magic right there. And I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to say, boom, phrasing. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah that, was, that, that just goes by, and it's not even referenced or even not even a weird look by anybody. It's just, just get, let's go, and it's, uh, it's really good. Pure dick magic. All right, so let's get to, uh, I, I know we're dragging on here, but the, the one thing that really stood out to me was that Ray, because of the contract that he signed with these guys, even though he was hustling and opening rent restaurants and getting people on board and super busy and there's success happening and there's money being made, he's broke. Yeah, that's another way of not having people look at it, not really looking and thinking through what your business model is. I think every time you start a business, you really have to, when you go in to get a loan, you lay out what your business model is. How are you going to make money? And I think that's one thing that he didn't think too much through. He thought that, you know, he's got this amazing product and the money is just going to come because we're going to be selling so many burgers and fries. And it's not until he has some happenstance meeting. And I don't know if that's actually how it happened in real life, but if it was, that was like the thing that turned it from this really good idea into a real business is when he meets the guy that tells him that he's not in the burger business, he's in the real estate business. And that's like that light bulb moment where it goes from a good idea to a great idea. Right, and I, I can't imagine, I mean, it makes sense to me that, that Croc wouldn't have seen that. You know, he was focused on hustling and throwing effort at it and running restaurants and getting more restaurants and finding the right people to run them. You know, he, he uh, had tried his country club friends who had a bunch of extra money just laying around and wanted to invest in something passively. And those places kind of ran, ran to shit. And then uh, he yeah. happened into this uh, Jewish Bible salesman. And he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy's hungry, right? He's, he's out there wearing his shoes out, willing to do what it takes to make a buck. So he knew that he needed to find some people who were scrappers like him. Yeah. And that's one of the parts of the movie that brings a tear to my eye almost every time. I'm a sucker for somebody having, you know, a dream and then having somebody support them in that dream. So there's like a line um, where he's got some fran young franchisee, franchisee couple sitting in you know, his desk and they're signing some papers. And the guy's like, okay, I think we can do this. We're, we're going to do something. I'm signing this. And the wife's like, that's right, honey, I believe in you. And that just gets me every time. That's <laughs> just like, oh, man, to have a partner that will believe in you and will support you in this uh, entrepreneurial uh, vision that you have and in this endeavor, and then there's, you know, the, 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 the couple where, like, he's in the kitchen, and she's outside, you know, handing out, like, lollipops, and I was just like, oh, man, oh, <laughs> getting so emotional. It's just beautiful, and then even Croc is like, man, this is just beautiful. These, these people that are changing their lives, and, you know, and they're, they're a team, and they're working it out, and they're doing it. Oh, it's just beautiful. I, I, man, the, I, I just love it. All right, ladies, you heard it here. This is Robert's uh, dating service uh, video. <laughs> looking, looking for a lady who's going to support him in his entrepreneurial efforts. <laughs> anytime, anytime you've got somebody that loves somebody so much and they believe in them, you know, to that level that, yes, let's, I'm on board this train. We're going to make this work. We're going to be a team and we're going to succeed in life. How can you not like just love that? That's wonderful. That's some uh, pure dick magic right there, Robert. You know, it, buddy. All right, so let's get back to the movie. So the land guy is the guy who figured it out, that the way you make money and gain control over the franchisees so that they do what you basically, you know, they buy into the system, right, is you get 
into this, uh, you lease the land to them. So you buy the land, you sell them a franchise, and they have to buy or they have to lease the property from you. And if they don't comply with the terms of the franchisee agreement, you don't renew the lease or you don't give them another uh, another lease, you know, for a second restaurant or a third restaurant. And that's that's brilliant, man. And it also gave him a consistent income stream where he's getting monthly payments from every restaurant now paying for the lease on the land so then he could go out and find more land and he was dictating where the restaurants were going to go which was a different model from the previous model which was someone wants to sign up for a franchise and they they find a place and they pick it out and you know it could be the wrong part of town it could be whatever so this uh, this land deal was really a stroke of genius and you know it's another thing of the specialization right it's something that Croc didn't see but somebody who was familiar with that concept or that how that kind of thing worked stumbled into his life and uh, was able to take it to that next level yeah uh, you get part of genius is is finding other specialized intelligent people that know their shit so you don't have to be an expert in everything. In fact, you probably don't even want to be an expert in everything because you can't be. But what you do want is people, you want experts around you in each of those individual areas of expertise. So he was able to, either by luck or by whatever, skill or just by having his name and being successful, he attracted people with those skills to him or he hired them and they were able to, yeah, take, take uh, the business to new heights for sure that he couldn't have done alone. And yeah. definitely the McDonald brothers couldn't have done a lot. Yeah, exactly. And and they were, you know, they had the, the they wanted to maintain control, right? Like letting go was what was going to let this thing fly. And it's something I struggle with uh, where I want to be competently good at so many different things that I, you know, you do the jack of all trades deal and you're not excellent at any particular thing. And uh, part of that is because you don't trust anyone else to do it. Like you have that vision, you want to be the one doing it or you think that maybe it would take too much effort to teach someone how to do it your way. And so you just keep that thing on your plate. And uh, I think that really does hold a lot of people back. Um, if you can find a way to identify what you're best at and focus your efforts on being even better at that thing that you have a natural aptitude for, then outsource the rest, man. Like know, know enough about those other things to know you're not getting screwed over, but find someone who specializes in those things to take, you know, take care of your lawn for you or do some of the, you know, more um, tedious uh, business tasks for you, right? Like a lawyer can hire a secretary for $20, $30 an hour to type up the stuff or he can type it himself. And even if he's a better typer, typist, uh, even though he might be better, it's going to cost him whatever he could have earned otherwise um, instead of typing, right? So he's yep. doing a $20 job when he could be doing a $500 job. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about having respect for your own time and, uh, yeah, recognizing that your time is more valuable and that you could easily just hire somebody to do this menial job for this little amount while you're doing yeah, bigger and better things. It's like Larry Bird paving his own driveway and throwing his back out when he could have just hired somebody to do it. Yeah, well said. Well, let, let's keep moving in this movie because this is going to be one of our longer episodes at this point. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, you really got the sense in the movie that the McDonald brothers were just like an albatross around his neck, just weighing him down. He wanted to innovate and move on and progress, but he was stuck to the terms of that contract. Um, and it, it, eventually he just breaks the contract without actually breaking the contract. Um, and he knew that the McDonald brothers would be able to, you know, if they sued him, he would, they would win. But he was like, well, I got money now, and I can just bury you in legal fees. And I thought that was some pretty shady shit. 
where he was just, well, I'm just going to use the brute force of violence and government to you know, get what I want instead of you know, honestly negotiating. Yeah, I agree. There was some shadiness to it, but I mean, any contract, especially one that's no longer servicing both parties, uh, there are clauses for non-performance and getting out of them. And, you know, he was more than willing to pay them. He even offered a blank check to buy them out. And uh, so I'm a little bit torn on it because they were holding him back for sure. They were. um, But, you know, if he wants out of the contract, then he has to get out of the contract fairly, like, you know, non-performance. But then there are consequences to that. I, I thought, you know, where he would just, I mean, it's true. I mean, I totally agree with him that he was doing what he thought was right in the sense that he wanted to innovate and save people money and, you know, go to the, the powdered shake thing. And they had a different vision. So, yeah, at that point, you guys should just, you know, part ways. But how he did it, where he was just like threatening them with legal fees and whatnot, I thought it was some, you know, pretty shady crap. Um, um, was it aggression? Probably not. I, I, I don't know the exact terms of the contract. You know, we'd have to actually look at the contract that they actually had, and there's no way to do that. So we don't know. All we can go is what we see in the movie. Right. So he but was it, saying that they would have had a case to use the force of government against him, and he would have defended himself enough to where they couldn't have sustained the costs. Yes, but I, I took that as meaning that they were right and he was in the wrong. But he was just he had the money to draw it out and make it onerous for them. Because at one point he's like, you guys are local. I'm international. I'm national. How can, you can't beat me, even though you're right. I, I don't know how you could defend that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of him being a dick. But I think that he was doing the right, right move business-wise. I mean, he was in an untenable situation where he wasn't going to be able to do the expansions and the improvements that were necessary to grow the business uh, with them around his neck. Sure, but you're not guaranteed business growth. No, he wanted more, and there's no guarantee of that, but he was in an unhappy relationship and he wanted out. Yes, but he didn't just want out. He wanted the business. He wanted their business. It's, it's tough to talk about this movie in this, you know, without really understanding the entire intricacies of the contract and what they were beholden to and whatnot. I mean, from what I understood in the contract, he had like, what, 1.9% of the profit or something like that, or was it? I forget what it was. Yeah, one one and a half or 1.9. But that was back yeah, when and then the brothers was, had like 0.5 percent, something like that. And I guess the rest of it was all going to the franchisees or something. Because, but whatever it was, it, it wasn't very much because he was broke before he stumbled upon this land thing. Right. I mean, perhaps at scale, like they say at the end, um, that the half percent that uh, they negotiated on a handshake deal would have been worth 100 million dollars a year. I guess at scale, those those percentages are significant. But back when it was a half dozen restaurants or whatever, 15 cent burgers, half dozen restaurants, 1.5%, 1.9%, whatever, isn't a ton of money. Right. But now that it's you know massively global and they serve, they what was it? They feed like 1% of the world's population every day or something like that. Um, well, let's talk about the, unless you got more notes, I'm sure you do probably. But if you want, I mean, do you have anything to talk about before we talk about the, the 1% handshake and the, the buying out and that sort of thing? Uh, well, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happens in the movie. He is married, but somewhat unhappily to a woman who doesn't share the same drive as him. And so he's growing distant from her. And he, he comes across this uh, also ambitious person who happens to be married to one of the restaurateurs in uh, Minnesota. And she had come up with that milkshake idea. And he thought that was brilliant. Uh, so he ends up divorcing his wife and marrying her. Not that that's like super important to the concepts we're talking about, but we're just moving the story No, but along. I mean, it does kind of show that he's, I mean, he's going after a married woman. I mean, you know, it just, it just plays to his character somewhat. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For me, it does. I mean, I generally 
would frown upon anybody making moves on a married woman. Especially right in front of the husband. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's baldy. Um, anyway, I mean, the heart wants, wants what it wants. I'm not going to say that his, he's a piece of shit for falling in love with a married woman, but being a homewrecker is, uh, doesn't earn you points in my book, let's put it that way. Yeah, well said. Well, let's get to the, uh, the 1% deal here, or half percent, whatever it was. It was a 1% in, perpe- in perpetuity, 1% profits in perpetuity to the McDonald's children or the grandchildren. And it was a handshake deal because Croc lied as far as I took it to be a complete lie, talking totally out of his ass when he's like, yeah, my investors, they won't deal with it. It's a, it's a deal breaker. Then it's a deal breaker. But they accepted it, and then Croc reneges on it. He says, well, you can't prove it, so I'm never going to pay you. And that just shows him to be a piece of shit. Yeah, I do agree. That was, that was rather dishonest. Um, I think that they should have known him by then. I mean, and in the movie, they sort of allude to it, like they know they're not getting that money. They keep saying they want it, but they kind of know it's not going to happen. I think, well, maybe. I, they seem to be either like naive rubes or yeah, maybe resigned to their fate. I mean, they do talk about how, you know, we'll never beat this guy. We need to just take the money because we're just not, we don't have it in us to fight this guy on the level that he's prepared to go. But, I mean, when you make the deal for 1% perpetuity, I mean, you're only as good as your word. If he's going to make a, a verbal contract like that and then not follow through on it, then that entire contract is invalid, and it should all be to those McDonald brother guys. Sorry. Yeah, in my opinion, he should have stuck to the deal, and they should have insisted that it be in the written portion and all of that. Uh, though, from a certain perspective, I'm like, okay, what are the McDonald brothers really bringing to this? You know, like they the had, yeah, the name. Uh, I mean, I what does that, what does that even matter? It's right. a deal. Well, the name the name is interesting because in the movie they make it sound like the name was the big thing that he wanted. Um, because Crocs, like, you know, not a good name for a restaurant, but there's a million names that you could just make up a name that has the same whatever feeling he was getting out of McDonald's. That seemed well, weird. He still could have, right, and he still could have named, he still could have gone off and named something McDonald's. And they don't have the trademark on McDonald's just because it happens to be their last name. I mean, a lot of people have the last name McDonald's. Yeah, so that, that was a little bit weird, and I think that the wanting the name and having them change their store once, once the deal, you know, once they separated, was a yeah. vindictive dick move type thing. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, he was bitter about whatever, even though he's totally screwing them over. But he was probably indignant about even having to go to the level that he did, which I think pa- makes the movie paint him as very negative in my eyes. I mean, I, I was all for him on his entrepreneurial whatever, and even when he was giving speeches with a yarmulke on his head and doing all the different bullshit to all the different people, pandering to different crowds like he, would, like he was a politician. I was like, fine, do what you got to do, even though you're being dishonest. You're portraying yourself as different than you actually are. Fine, whatever. But when you make a deal and you make a contract and then you don't live up to that, I mean, especially it's like 1%. You're, you're, you're mega rich. You're giving like billions of dollars to NP fucking R. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Don't do the deal if you're not happy with it. Negotiate a better deal where you don't give 1% away. But don't, don't say you're going to do something and not do something. I'll agree. Circle gets the square. All right. <laughs> so I think we sort of ham-fisted our way through, through the movie here. Should we do a final summary and our rating? All right. So it's the story of a driven guy and two genius brothers that had a vision that, I mean, they had a rocky relationship. And I think it's a really good portrait of a complicated dude. Um, I don't think he was necessarily a very moral man, but maybe he, maybe he kind of was. I mean, he definitely had, I think he was right about persistence. That's for damn sure. Um, stick with it. Uh, not necessarily like stay on board the Titanic as it's sinking, 
But if you've got a good idea, it's better to push through and work that idea to its fullest than to have a whole bunch of different ideas that you're kind of working on a little bit at a time. For me, this is a big black and gold movie. I think this is a fantastic film. It's, it, it, it really portrays the, the entrepreneurial spirit, and it, I, I don't think it's necessarily what would necessarily happen in like an ANCAP kind of a world. I think the, the players would have slightly different mindsets at least. What a, what a great movie just about entrepreneurs and business and dealing with people and that sort of thing. Because um, we are all just humans, right? We're all works in progress. We're all trying to succeed in this world. And here's a success story. And he wasn't a perfect person. And I think he, was, he certainly could have afforded to be a better person, especially on that last deal. I think it's a great portrait of a, a complex situation and a complex character. So a big thumbs up for me. All right. Well, well said. I'm also going to go with a super black and gold. This is a movie that I feel like was almost perfect for us to, uh, to analyze. I mean, there's so many little economic things and moral questions and whatnot. And uh, I know we yeah. meandered quite a bit, but um, I think it was well worth it. We had some pretty good discussion, even in what might become pre-show. I'm not sure if I'm going to cut some of that stuff out or not. But uh, uh, there's a quote in this movie where he says, fortune favors the bold. And I think another relevant quote that they could have just as easily have said is that luck finds the prepared. And that's what this guy was doing, Croc. You know, he, he had been around enough to know when he stumbled upon something good. And uh, so that's one of the things that, that you know, kind of makes it a, a perfect movie for us. I mean, yeah, Croc was kind of a dick, but he was driven. He was persistent. And the McBrothers, I mean, they were very technically efficient engineering types, super smart guys. They solved many problems. They, they were driven in their own scale, but it was just smaller than the vision that Kroc had. And um, I think that it goes back to that division of labor and specialization. And that without uh, these different specializations coming together, we wouldn't have McDonald's as we have it today. Like you and I wouldn't have grown up eating uh, there uh, on school bus trips <laughs> uh, and whatnot. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of by magic of the market was able to spring into, into existence um, and no one individual could have done it all by themselves. Uh, you know, it took the guy who figured out the, the land stuff to get the franchise uh, under control and to bring in the cash flow. And it, it made me wonder if this kind of arrangement would even be permitted today. Like if, if you went and said, okay, I'm going to start a business where once you sign this contract, you are required to buy this other service or rent this land from me. It sounds like it would be like something the government would not permit anymore. I don't know though. Uh, yeah, due to like monopoly rules or something. I mean, in a, play, in a world where Microsoft can't put their own browser on their own operating system, or at least in the EU they couldn't, or they got big fines or something like that for monopoly. Right, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. And AT&T is in shit right now for trying to buy time or something. They're saying we got to spin off AOL. I mean, like AOL is a thing anymore. But yeah, it's just, it's just ridiculous stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I wonder if this kind of model, if it didn't already exist, if it could uh, spring forth today. I mean, I, I guess technology and innovation always outpaces government. Government's always trying to catch up and regulate things after they've kind of become a thing. I mean, you see that with the, the net neutrality stuff that uh, everyone's up in arms about these days because I guess it was announced today that the FCC is going to recommend to repeal the net neutrality uh, controls, and I applaud that. It's like one of the only things I can say that government's being right about. Uh, 
and, and there's all sorts of people coming at me saying I'm a shill for big business and saying that I'm an idiot and I don't understand uh, that net neutrality means less government control. But um, no, sorry, buddy. Uh, if you're going to regulate something as a utility and not permit the owners of the property to determine the prices that they're willing to sell their services for, that, my friend, is more government control. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's all going through the lefty media, especially like the gawkers. They got some really terrible websites or really terrible articles out just today. Um, really, it's like one of them claims to be like Nostradamus because he keeps saying like, and then this might happen and that's going to happen and this is probably going to happen and then this is going to be really bad. And that's like, well, I understand you're, 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 you're catching your argument in maybes and probablys and could be's, but the whole article reads like just massive doom and gloom is going to happen now that um, there might just be some, a little bit of freedom coming out. It's just bizarre. Yeah, people are afraid of freedom. I don't know why. And they're afraid of the market. I don't know why. Yeah, the market which serves, this is bending over backward to satisfy every desire. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, so scary. These people, man, I, I hope at some point they figure it out because uh, they, are, they are certainly vociferous about their opinions, but they lack any knowledge of economics. And that was actually something I pointed out to one of the guys I was debating on Twitter today. I brought up the economic argument. He's like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I'm like, everything, man. Everything. It's the whole fucking point. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Anyway, back to the, my summary review of the movie. You know, Croc was the guy who, through trial and error and persistence, figured it out. And that's what you need, man. You need that kind of uh, drive and specialization to, to make something work. So keep plugging away. That's my suggestion for everyone. Find something you're really good at and become the best at it. Well said. Yeah, this is a very specialized planet. Our uh, division of labor is everything. And... Yeah, you you don't get uh, Steve Jobs if he also has to you know mow his own lawn and break the leaves and pave his own driveway and build his own house and all that. He can he can put his specialized knowledge to developing the latest iPhone instead of having to do everything else, which is another argument against like anarcho-primitivism and all these people that want to get back to the old hunter-gatherer societies. I mean, it's not a huge movement, and I understand you know a little bit of a back to the land movement for people yearning that are in the middle of the rat race. I understand that, but. You just don't just don't make these these arguments on your iPhones, please. Posting <laughs> to Facebook about how we all need to get back to the back to the land, please. And speaking of your iPhones, uh, the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom now has an iPhone app and perhaps even an Android one. So if you do end up picking it up during this Black Friday weekend where you get the best prices of the year, save a bunch of smackers on it and also get bonuses from us like the Rothbard Repository and some read it for me bonuses. Check it out at actualanarchy.com/libertyclassroom for all that good stuff. And also for Cyber Monday coming up tomorrow, do click on the Amazon links on our page and then go and buy uh, something nice for your kids or for your wife or husband or significant other, uh, maybe one of these uh, Everlast Rocket Books. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, if you're right-handed, I guess, not if you're left-handed. Buy something else. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. It's been great. It's been grand. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving, right? Right. Wink, wink. Hasn't happened yet, but by the time you hear this, it has. Yes. <laughs> we hope it was good. And uh, this is uh, episode 52 of the Actual Anarchy podcast. can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 52. So thank you guys very much for joining us. I do appreciate you. I, I want to say thank you. Uh, we did our Thanksgiving special previously, and I don't know if I said thank you to our audience. So thank you for being our audience. Thank you for listening to us, and thank you for your support. We've got Patreon and all that other good stuff. Check it out. Uh, we'll keep plugging away, and uh, hopefully you keep listening. Peace out, Cup Scout.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do